Welcome to the Purpose at Work podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Jacobson. This episode is brought to you by Guided. They help you stop employee burnout and turnover by providing great coaching for all employees so you can get out of the weeds and focus on building great culture. The best talent values learning and growth over everything else. They don't want to be managed. They want to be guided to realize their potential. So if you're ready to evolve talent development, make sure to check out getguided.co. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Purpose at Work podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Jacobson. And today I have Colin Mansell, who is the CEO of Red Academy. Red is a design and technology school with campuses in Canada and the UK, where students learn by doing, working on real projects with startups and charities, and developing both the hard and soft skills they need to succeed in the 21st century. I am especially excited for Colin to be in this conversation. There's no one that I like to talk about the future of work or technology or education with than Colin. It's like we talk every month or so, and then you're just coming back with more more insights and inspiration. So I feel like I've sort of been able to outsource some of my future thinking to you, which has been awesome. And so, yeah, good to be here. Yeah. So absolutely welcome. So let's, so let's dive in. So Colin, what is a great story from your life or career that has an underlying valuable message? Uh, I always pull out a metaphor from, not from my working life, but actually when I first moved to Canada. So um, as you can hear, I'm not originally Canadian, but I moved here 10 years ago with my girlfriend at the time. And we ended up hiring, uh, basically, we, we drove across from Toronto, so, you know, so we camped across the Rockies and then rented a little sailing boat here in Vancouver and then sailed that up the coast to Alaska, which is quite far, as it turns out, and also not something that I had um, very much experience with before. So it, it actually ended up being a really powerful metaphor in the sense that, you know, like after two weeks, the engine blew up and we had to figure that out and that we would meet lots of people along the way who would say, look, you know, this is a very long, it's a very long journey and probably your boat is a little bit too small and you should probably at least have a working engine to try and get to Alaska, but that we still got there. And, um, you know, so the metaphor for me is always like, it's simply, we didn't sail to Alaska in one go. Um, we, we also didn't really set off with that fixed mindset of we've got to get to Alaska. All that we did is we woke up every morning and we said, do we reckon that we can get this boat 30 kilometers up the coast to that little bay there? And then that day, that's all we would focus on. We would get the boat to, you know, just a little distance and throw an anchor out at the other end. And we were like, okay, we've done that. And then the next day we would do the same thing and we'd do the same thing the next day. And so really what the, the sort of the metaphor for me is, is first of all, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day in order to get any great distance. It's simply about putting one foot after the other and, 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 you know, realizing that it's no one great one effort that gets you there. It's lots of small steps that, that get you there. And secondly, that you're going to, you're going to have lots of naysayers, lots of people who say that that's nuts. You're crazy for doing that. And, you know, just not to perhaps listen to those people, but instead just do what you can do today to get you a little bit closer to your goal. And it's that activity that actually ends up creating this kind of, you know, sail to Alaska or climb the mountain or whatever the end goal is. But the end result is actually a result of lots of little steps. So for me, that was a very formative experience. I'm curious when you were starting out or even through it, how much was there an intention 
to wind up somewhere. Can you can you shed a little light on that, or was this truly yeah, no, for like, sure. no, I mean, was it like, oh, we'll go sailing again today? Well, it was it was literally, you know, the Alaskan border. It's about probably about seven hundred miles north of Vancouver, something like that, as the crow flies. So actually, in terms of actual distance, it's it's pretty far, and there's a good chunk of it, about three hundred miles of coastline, where there are no roads. I mean, it's a difficult thing to do to sail all of that distance. So I think by having a kind of non-attachment to the outcome of saying, look, we're just going to go on the journey. And right. maybe we'll get to Alaska, maybe we won't. But the, the, there is no sort of, there is no predetermination that's actually going to impact the outcome, other than that you've got to make sure that your boat is halfway decent enough to get you reasonably safely some distance. And then, you know, for sure, we, we almost broke the mast, we lost the engine, we're definitely a few moments where it's kind of like touch and go and like you ask yourself, wait, what, what were we doing here? <laughs> but the end result is, is actually just simply you know, in, in the exact moment of crossing across into Alaska, that's not the most memorable moment of the journey by any stretch. It's seeing glaciers, totem poles on a, like in a discarded village on, on the Prince of Wales Island uh, in, in Alaska or seeing bears. Um, and I couldn't even exactly tell you, uh, uh, seeing a humpback come up behind the boat while you just sort of sat there reading your paperback. And there's suddenly like this enormous push and you turn around, there's a humpback diving uh, right behind the boat so those kind of moments they're not the ones you plan right so it's not the arrival at the top of the mountain or the arrival in alaska that is the the moment of glory the, the little moments along the way are actually the ones that are the most meaningful and the most memorable and then yeah as a story it's like yeah i, I sailed to alaska and that's kind of fits a nice little nutshell story but from the inside that doesn't really describe the, the depth of the experience that, that you end up having and it reminds me of the adage that, you know, we drastically overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and we drastically underestimate what we can accomplish in 10 years. And likewise with this, it's, you can't complete your journey in a day. No. All you can do is not stop. That's right. And that whenever you think there's such a thing as destination, it's a complete illusion. So even when we look at people that we think of as great heroes that we go, oh my God, like Elon Musk, what a great guy, you know, and he, he you know, has built Tesla. Well, actually it turns out Tesla's still got financial troubles at points in its future. Is Elon Musk any happier than the guy who runs the shop down the road? You know, so we, we fill our heads with illusions of destinations of saying, oh, well, if I get there, then I will be happy. So I think that's, there's a big lesson in that, that the only place where you'll find any experience is on the road and you will never arrive at a destination as such because there's always something after it you know so it's even if you you sail to Alaska or whatever or, or build a company or land some big check mark in your to-do list of life goals you'll still have things after that and it's never the moment of putting the check box in right the box the right. check mark in the box that is the true most meaningful moment yeah Absolutely. So, so Colin, I'm going to, I'm going to take us in a slightly different direction because part of what I think is so great about you being on this, on this conversation is many of the listeners will be hiring the people that are going through Red Academy. And so you spend a lot of your time thinking about 
what do students need to be learning now in order to be not only competitive now with their career, but also in the future? So could you share a little bit more about RED itself and how you're thinking about the future of education? And then we can eventually get to how that plays into the workplace. Yeah, I think to kind of set a context is, you know, there's a guy called Alvin Toffler. And he wrote a book in, I think it's late 70s, early 80s, which is around the third wave. And it's not around the third industrial revolution. It's, it's actually around what he calls the wave. So it's, it's moving, you know, we've had agricultural economy, which came from a hunter-gatherer society. So that was the first wave. And literally everybody before that was hunter-gathering. And after that, they're all working in a field. So statistically in the UK, um, in 1700, 95% of people were in the agricultural economy. They stood in the field. You know, by 1850, we'd gone into the industrial age and 95% of people in 1850, they stood in a factory. So that was the second wave. The third wave is moving from the industrial age into the information age. And a lot of people don't even realize that this has happened. And we're still using industrial approaches to solving information age problems. So, for example, 95% of people in the UK are not working in a factory. They're working in service economy, in financial, you know, in real estate, in education, in, um, you know, you name it, anything web related. It's about the transfer of information. So whether that's knowledge or data, the information age, everybody at some, in some way or form is monetizing the transfer of information. So our school system is still industrial. It's literally grading people as if they're like how we would grade, you know, a beef burger, right? We're, we're grading it as if everybody is going to have to be a factory worker because we need really effective factory workers. But that's right. not true. We actually which, is, need... which is what the education system was originally created. That's right. That's make. right. And it hasn't changed at all. It's still one person at the front that you've got to listen to. You've got to remember what they're saying. It's exactly like a factory floor. There's the boss, that's the foreman. You've all got to basically whatever stamp your machine and get exactly this you know, quality control unit out and we're going to grade all of you. And by the end of it, you might get a slight pay rise if you make sure that your little widget that you're producing on your production line is exactly the same as everybody else's. Now, the reality is, is that the people that are working on factory lines are not exactly the most well-rewarded people in our society. The most well-rewarded people in our society are the Elon Musks. They're the, they're the dreamers, the innovators, the creators, the disruptors. Like I myself was kicked out of class many times for being disruptive. And our school is now seen in the world as one of the disruptive models of education. That's kind of the future of education. So it's like this whole thing of disruption and disruptiveness is the thing that we do not condone in the classroom and yet we celebrate it and reward it higher than anything else in the real economy. So there's a complete disconnect. It's not even like a minor miss. It's completely the whole industrial education model is preparing people who will copy, regurgitate and repeat what has happened in the past. The people that do well in the information age are innovators. They do exactly the opposite of what's been done in the past. They are as disruptive as possible. They um, make a big noise about what they're doing. And they're the people who end up changing the world, whether it's, you know, like we mentioned Elon Musk, but people like Richard Branson. Um, you know, you could say that Zuckerberg left college. The number of people who are, in fact, successful entrepreneurs who did not do well at school is frightening, really. 
because it's such a high miscorrelation yeah. that you'd almost say, look, the way to predict whether someone's going to be successful is if they fail at school, because that seems to be a closer correlation than if they succeed. Yeah. And I want to jump in quickly to say that this isn't even just about creating innovative entrepreneurs, but that just to speak of collaboration yeah. and communication, just core skills that that people need in order to be successful in their work. We're not successfully creating education systems around collaboration, communication. No, I mean, it, it goes even deeper and, and sort of to the topic of, you know, purpose. Um, I think, you know, we live in a kind of post-industrial society. It's, it's the information age. Now, we also live in a, in a world with a lot of problems, right? Like with, with um, you, you know, UN Sustainable Development Goals are just a framework of saying, look, these are the significant problems. And we're talking about global warming. We're talking about energy security, uh, future of education. There are many things that we need to fix as a generation. In fact, I don't know that we've had as many problems to face as, as a generation as we do now. As, you know, it's talking about literally survival of the species needs to be figured out in the next hundred years. And um, so that kind of pulls back to not just what you're doing, but why you're doing it. And, you know, there's an amazing statistic that, you know, I, I sort of sit as I'm 40 years old, I sit between the baby boomer generation and the millennial generation and, and Gen Z, which is kind of arguably different. And you sort of see the baby boomers saying, oh, you know, the millennials, they're, they're so, you know, what, what's, what's the, the term entitled, entitled. entitled, right? So but even though the baby boomers told the millennials, you can have anything that you want. And, you know, it's kind of set up that way. And that baby boomers bought all the real estate, they rent that to their millennial children and then say, why aren't you buying a house, even though the cost of housing is now many multiples higher than what it was when they were able to do that themselves. So um, there's this disconnect of the millennials who are basically being given all of the problems that the baby boomers created, which is not just the ecology of the planet, like the global warming issues, but, but even things like real estate, you can't afford to buy a house or a flat. You know, you're, you're going to have both of you are going to have to work in order to see your kids through to university, which by the way, you're now also you know, paying huge amounts for, which outside of the States, education, higher you know, universities used to be free in Canada, the UK, in many parts of Europe, that's now no longer the case. So you've got this millennial generation who are being given, you know, basically very hard to kind of get on the real estate ladder, very hard to kind of prove your wealth in the same way that the baby boomers did. It was all about, you know, the 80s would have been like the pinnacle of that, about look at how much money I've got and that that's your goal in life. Now, the millennials have been given a world that's got a load of problems that need solving. And so the equity that we earn for ourselves or the value that we create in the world is no longer about like, check out my fancy car and that that should somehow be an acceptable answer to what success looks like you know the millennial generation knows that we've got to fix so many different things there are um you know i've listed some of them but um you see this kind of continual shift in focus towards purposeful business but it's no longer enough to build a company and sell it in fact it's kind of seen as like hollow empty it certainly um i know a few ceos who've done that they've killed themselves building a company exited and then they sit there miserable because they don't understand they've kind of like reached the destination to go back to our original metaphor but they don't understand that they're miserable because they are it's the journey bit that's important and the journey if that's not connected to purpose and then it's meaningless right So, So. so what are the so what does the workforce want now 
right? So if what they used to aspire to was the status and the accumulation, what are you seeing, especially amongst your students, as their desire? Well, I think it's it's still kind of a, a Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of discussion, right? Like, so I think in, in an industrial society, a lot of people don't have a lot of the basic needs. So you're talking about food, shelter, clothing, and creating security for your family. Then it's about a sense of belonging. You could sort of describe the 1960s in, in especially the American dream as that being a sense of great social belonging. You could describe the 80s as a period of um, social recognition, right? wanting to stand out, wanting to get your status. I think we're moving as a society, as, as developed parts of the world, into the self-actualization stage of people starting to think, okay, fine, I can make a bit of money, but that's actually still hollow and meaningless. What do I really want to do? Um, at the end of my life, how do I want to look back at how I made a contribution? And I think more and more people are seeing that a financial gain to get a bit of social status is pretty hollow. And that actually, if I can make an impact on people's lives, if I can build um, something that's meaningful in my local community, if I can go and contribute towards I don't know, education projects in Africa, if I can, you know, how can I make more use of my time that's really meaningful for me? So that's self-actualization stage. So I think that's a framework and a progression that you're seeing in society that in, in many ways is being enabled by technology itself. You know, we are moving to a future that is arguably, I mean, you could sort of go macro on this and say, where is the world in 100 years time to get a sense of where are we really going? And you can sort of see this, um, you know, I've got this Abundance 360 thing that the Peter Diamandis view of the world is that, you know, energy is going to be free, you know, like solar. Once you've got some solar panels and a battery system, actually, you don't have to go and drill for oil and send it to a refinery and drive it in trucks and then manage that whole system and the number of people involved in Actually, no, you've got solar abundant. Um, as long as you've got a battery system, everybody gets free electricity. Okay. Water, food. I mean, we're talking about like things like lab grown meat. Um, we're talking about farms that are self managing that don't actually need people to run them that can run at 10x the amount of output as a traditional farming environment. And um, if you believe that line of thinking, which I do, I do think that we're going to move to kind of post money society, that actually work becomes a thing of creativity, it becomes a thing of finding purpose, much more so than a thing of necessity. Yeah. Um, so I think that that starts to put a very interesting, you know, and, and we're not going to get there in one leap. There is probably four or five major stages that we have to work through. What is definitely certain is uncertainty, is that we need resilience as individuals. We need to be able to design our own futures. We can't wait for a job. The idea of like bringing back the unions and reopening the factories is completely nuts. It's like saying we should all start hunter-gathering again. It's completely going backwards. So in fact, all future jobs will be invented by somebody who says, hey, you know, it's the same as when you know, this, the, the Luddite argument, which was in the mid-1800s, there was a load of mechanization of labor. There were a lot of these factories that were producing textiles in Manchester and in, in some of the northern cities. They got automated. Right? So there, suddenly there's a mill that does the job of 10 people and everybody was like, oh my God, all of our jobs are going to disappear. What does that mean? Well, since then, you've got fashion designers, you've got fashion brands, you've got influencer marketers, you've got an infinite number of jobs that were created in the absence of there being jobs for people to weave, hand weave textiles. 
Right. So I don't believe that there's a limitation on what jobs. Well, and, and some of them, those jobs have gone to other places. And now there's to some extent an even higher end market for hand weaved goods and totally. it's even reinventing itself in that way. I, I'm curious how you see this playing out in the current workplace. Cause one of the paradigms I'm seeing is whereas it used to be enough to people wanted to accumulate they want it to climb. And now one of the themes I hear over and over and over again from business leaders is that their employees want to grow. They want to learn and they want to grow. And so what they're advocating often is they want training and they want these skills development experiences, but then those are falling short of expectations. And what I'm seeing that employees really want is they want to learn what do they really want. <laughs> they want to learn how to actualize that purpose that you're talking about. They want to do things that are really meaningful. So they, yeah. they sense at a high level, I think that employees are on track and they sense that I want to be learning because that's the currency of today and tomorrow is how quickly can you learn? What are you growing towards? Because all the jobs. That, that is exactly right, right? Like I think information age, right? The knowledge economy currency in a knowledge economy is knowledge and that is the currency it may still get expressed in dollar amounts but actually the transfer and the holding of knowledge is is where all of the value in a knowledge economy exists so i think what's what's really interesting as well is is that kind of the purpose-based discussion and how that mirrors on that same plane so if you're a company and let's say you know you're you're making widgets um, and you're moving from that kind of old model industrial model into the new economy a good example is like um, one of the advertising agencies here in canada they wanted us to come in and train their people on digital transformation and we're like you know sure okay but but what exactly are you expecting and we sat down with the c-suite and they you know they were like well we you know we want to become a digital first kind of thinking company which you know is a, a euphemism for a knowledge economy business and really so we went there and we trained a few of their people on digital marketing on the future of like exponential technologies on you know some of the mindset shift that comes with part of this you know focusing more on purpose and if anything we just caused a bit of trouble inside the company because it unlocked individual thinking as to, hey, maybe I'm not in the right job. Maybe this company is never going to make this switch to enough of a level for me to really see myself here in, in the long term. Can you talk more about purpose and what that means to you? There's a lot of ways we can think about purpose. I want to hear about Colin's purpose. I want to talk about business purpose and then how that impacts the employee experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my theory gets a little bit Buddhist, but I think you've Perfect. got a series of energies within you that drive your behavior, right? And you could say that yin energy is your empathy for the world. So yin is where I see somebody suffering and I want to minimize that suffering. So that's my heart, you know? And then I would also say that your gut is where you have fire in the belly. That is yang energy. That is the fire. That is like, that is outrageous that that still exists. There is no way I am... <laughs> going to spend my time on this planet and not address that right so those are the two driving energies and that's what i call your gut and your heart 
And I'd say the third one, and I'm sure that some people would disagree and say that you've got chakras and you've got all sorts of energy centers and blah, blah, blah. But my simple view is, is that you've got your heart energy, which is your yin, which is your compassion. You've got your, your gut energy, which is like fire in the belly, like outrage at stuff that should be different. And then you've got your head, which figures out your philosophy on how you're going to practically do something with the body, physical body, and the time that you have on this planet to practically be able to move the needle on it. Because it's not enough to be outraged. Right. It's not enough to go, oh my God, it's so sad that this is happening. That's not enough. It's actually putting that into thought. And I'd say that thought is the first of three steps in think, say, and do. So in, in the thinking, which is where you translate that energy, that's where you set your purpose in an actual, in a language, practical-based way. So Colin, for yeah. you, you seem to be a pretty mission-based guy. Of the things that you're up to, you're building schools in Africa, you're building an amazing modern school system for adults to be able to learn amazing skills so they can self-actualize their career dreams. What is Colin's purpose? Uh, yeah, so I mean, this is something that I, I think you never really get the right answer. I think, you know, it's like the idea of, you know, words are always an inadequate way of fully expressing ourselves, but it's the best thing we've got. Um, so I think you kind of re-clarify that in words, you know, regularly and constantly and, and sort of, I think, getting to a big number like 40, it helps to kind of clarify that in your own mind. So I think, you know, my answer to that right now is, you know, it used to be to live an extraordinary life. So it's to basically live life to the absolute fullest, whatever opportunity opportunities come on your path, take the ones that are going to make your life more interesting. That's, that was how I'd sort of framed my 30s was do that. But then I realized that what that really is about is there is a lot of things in the world that I want to change that maybe in my 20s and 30s, I wasn't in a position to practically be able to do anything about it. As I get into a position of, of you know, having a company that's profitable and self-sustaining and having a team that is incredibly competent and able to create a lot of change and impact in the world, it starts to move more. How do I inspire others to create meaningful impact in the world? So to recognize that we all have this agency and power, fire in the belly, you know, glow in our hearts and a brain on our, you know, head on our shoulders that allows us to figure out ways in which we can make a contribution. And so my purpose is about First of all, having found that for myself in the journey, you know, whether it's sailing to Alaska, starting a company, all these things that at one point were very hard and seemed unattainable, that now having been attained and, you know, having this kind of capacity for abundance, for being able to give back, it becomes very much about waking that up in other people in saying, look, you've got, you see all those problems in the world that you're pissed off about, you go and fix them. That's your job. And the more you do that, the more happy you'll be. And uh, it's all there, ready for you to take. It's, it's, you might need to learn some stuff. You might need to learn some hard skills. Like you know, if you want to build an app to make, I don't know, I was in Africa a few weeks ago, like a, an app that whereby tractors can be shared amongst farmers in Africa. If, you're, if that's your thing, you want to help agriculture in, you know, in developing countries, then you'd need to learn the hard skills of building an app. But you also need the soft skills of how do you bring people along with you? How do you like self-reflect? How do you give and receive feedback within a team? How do you get a really effective team to, to make that app? And I'm just using that as an example, but there's an infinite number of those projects which need doing. That's kind of the beauty of our time. It's the challenge of our time, but it's also the beauty of our time is that we have such a, an abundance of purpose because there's so many problems that we need to go and fix. So there's lots to do. How have you incorporated the conversation of purpose into building RED? 
and building your team, building the organization? I mean, it's a poignant question. We just, just had our sort of three-year anniversary. You know, we had a board meeting last week, which was really going right back to the why, really right back to the purpose of Red. And we've got, um, you know, we've, we've effectively self-funded five investors, myself, um, you know, two other active investors and two impact investment groups who, who are behind Red. You know, we've built this company at a great speed, you know, 2,000 graduates in three years, not, not nothing to get there. And lots of investors that are like cool, profitable, high growth companies, very serious team that could go and build, you know, 10 more of these. So they're getting their checkbooks out. And it's very tempting to go, oh, yeah, yeah, we should, we should go and build like a $500 million company, right? And there are companies that are out there doing that. But checking ourselves on the illusion right because that's that destination going back to our original point right. it's an illusion the journey is the important thing and and people that go to that 500 million dollar valuation they kill themselves in the process their families are non-existent by the end of it you know they've burnt themselves through so how we just keep refocusing back on that why which for us it's about you know creating you know, it's, it's to redefine education. It's the, the vision is a world where everyone has the freedom to design and create the future they desire. Our purpose is the pursuit of happiness and education as a vehicle to not only provide like the, the hard skills of coding, UX design, product management, AI, data science, whatever it is, but actually the soft skills to wake that up in people to say, Red is asking the question, why do we exist? But we expect every staff member and every student to be asking that of themselves and maybe not have an answer the first time, but just keep asking yourself that question and engaging with what is possible. Engage in the same way that we said, hey, wouldn't it be cool to start a school? Well, three years later, here we go with three of them and thousands of graduates. That only came from the same question. So it's, I think, connecting it back into that sense of, look, we're all here with potential within us and red is unlocking that potential we're asking that question why are we here what what is the thing that really is our north star it's not about selling a 500 million dollar company it's actually about if in 60 years time we have a company like the patagonia of education like that is known as committing the full journey to the true purpose of what that company was about one of the many things that i love about what you're doing is that what you just said is that is integrated. The way that you're running the organization and choosing to grow is integrated with what you're hoping to impart to students. Totally. In that, in that what we are creating as a society is hopefully businesses that can create a sustainable society. We can't keep growing for the sake of purely growing. That's not going to work long time for the ecology of the planet. Mm-hmm. And so you are developing and educating the leaders of tomorrow in a model that isn't incongruent because you could very easily go raise all the money and then these people will be educated in a model that is incongruent with what we actually hopefully will want to be creating. And what's really interesting to me is you are teaching all these people to ask the question, why? And I would also assert that these people are getting great technical education and then they're going into organizations and they'll continue to ask the question why and, or they'll just go work at companies that are already asking themselves why. Yeah. I'm conscious of time. So the last question I have Colin is what is the best leadership advice that you've ever received? 
Uh, it's the best advice I've ever received, but I don't know if it's advice that I followed uh, as much as I should have done. But it's really about hiring people that are smarter than you and getting out of their way. And it's a process. What I would say is that I'd say that's very true. What I would also say is that expect an enormous amount of personal change in the process. And that what you need at the beginning of the journey, it may be different to what you need in the middle and maybe different to what you want at the end. So your role will change in all of that. I think I would say in terms of leadership, you may well begin by being a very like an alpha dog leading at the front and saying, this is how we're doing it. And if you want to be high performance, there's going to be some bumps. You're going to lose a few people. You've got to get okay with that. You've got to remain committed to high performance. And that's the early stage. I'd say the mid stage is really where you've got to like get your leaders in and allow them to kind of really own it. You can't step in and start saying, oh, I would do this this way. I do, But you need to get to that point. And then I would say the third stage is like, I see so many CEOs, even in their 50s and 60s. And I'm like, if, if you are the owner of a company and you're lucky enough to be in that position, at a certain point, like, get rid of yourself. You're in the way, right? Like go and go and right. be the chairman, go and be on the board. But like, if you really want to build a sustainable company, you can't be there forever. So it's definitely that higher smart people get out of the way, but recognizing that at different stages, you know, beginning, you'll need to be really strong in the middle. You'll need to start delegating and really trust. Right. right, right. And in the third, you've got to be totally hands off for it to, to truly be a, a long-term sustainable business. Beautiful. And Colin, how can people connect with you? You can email me uh, is colin at redacademy.com with any questions. Um, I have a Twitter account. To be honest, I'm a bit of a Twitter laggard in that respect. So um, there won't be many tweets from me. But um, by all means, or to reach out to you, Spence. And uh, yeah, always happy to answer any questions. And if folks want to check out Red Academy, that's redacademy.com. That's right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Colin. Thank you, Spence. Great to chat.